Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I apologize. We are an episode behind our normal schedule. Uh, just been traveling a lot. Just got back from Washington, which made me want to have my friend Katie Faust back on the show, who hails from Washington as well. And we've had her on the show before. Many of you love her. Some of you don't. I've actually lost a couple donors recently over having her on the podcast. And so I think it was very important to have her back on because there is a natural order and there is a natural law upon which pro-lifers build and make their pro-life arguments. However, that same natural order and law also applies to the Christian position against third-party reproductive technologies. And it's very important to draw the line between the two and make the case against both abortion and third-party reproductive technologies. And so, as if to prove the point for us, the culture of death, their serviles, and the abortion industrial complex is renting their garments and screaming about their concern over losing eyes. IVF, in vitro fertilization, and various forms of third-party reproductive technology. In other words, they're telling you, pro-lifer, that they recognize that by the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the premises upon which their third-party reproductive technology industry is built upon is also compromised now as well. Oh, for pro-lifers who understood the links between these two, as well as the serviles of the abortion industry do. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Katie, welcome back to the show. So good to be with you again. Yes, absolutely. I uh, we, we I was bummed that we didn't get a, a hang out and uh, grab a bite to eat with you and your wonderful family. But I just got in last night and we were at Westgate Chapel in Edmonds, Washington. Um, Pastor Alec Rollins, absolutely incredible brother. He was the first pastor, actually, Katie, to file a lawsuit with ADF against Jay Inslee, the Newsom wannabe, for his restrictions against churches during the shutdowns. And Inslee backed off because of that church's uh, courage. And so, um, but we're, we're, we're going to hopefully uh, have you out uh, soon at some of our conferences, uh, as well as always back on the podcast. But we were texting the well, other day and I realized, what's that? About, let me just say a little word about churches in Washington. Yeah. The worst part about attending a church or leading a church in Washington is the massive cultural friction. The best part is the massive cultural friction because it is a sifting, right? Mm. This is part of the refining and the yeah. sifting and the um, fuller's soap, as Malachi talks about, that is going to bleach you into Christ's holiness, right? That if you can figure out how to firmly resist, That's good. Um, that kind of abrasion from the culture actually will refine you or it's going to strip you down to nothing like a lot of the compromising churches and that's fine yep. they'll just feed into culture but the churches that are serious about standing firm they're going to be strengthened and fortified through yep. the midst of so if you can find a good church in washington uh prepare because they have their jesus on all the time yep yep that's right um 
So the same is true of California, of course, Katie, which I just left, but Godspeak Calvary Chapel, the, the church that I kind of still call home and will be preaching in on September 4th as part of our White Rose Resistance National Live Tour, it's the same thing in California as it is in Washington. Either you will syncretize to the culture and adopt kind of what Bonhoeffer called a cheap grace— just kind of a grace and gospel in Jesus you've created in your own image. Um, or you'll become more of a warrior than probably parts of middle America and a little bit more in the Bible belt because you've been forced to develop your moral fiber uh, yeah. and learn to stand against everything that's happening. And unfortunately, Washington is right there at the top of these pro-abortion states that are tripling down oh. on all of this. But but that's a, that's a wonderful line. It, it reminds me of something Bonhoeffer once said, Katie, and I think we should say this to our apolitical, disengaged, I'm neither left nor right churches who abdicate on all of these issues we're about to talk about. Bonhoeffer once said, do and dare what is right, not swayed by the whim of the moment. Bravely take hold of the real not dallying now with what might be, not in the flight of ideas, but only in action is freedom. Um, he said, um, make up your mind and come out into the tempest of the living. God's command is enough and your faith in him to sustain you. Then at last freedom will welcome your spirit amid great rejoicing. So it's that's that's the that's the invitation, yeah. right? And actually, the the journey that our apolitical, disengaged, abdication Christians are missing out on is that you're actually missing out on the greatest adventure of being used yeah. by God. And but we're getting very close now, uh, Katie, in this late hour in the culture of death, where we may reach a point of no return. And that is especially true or particularly true when it comes to children, when it comes to children's rights. Um, obviously, with killing children in the womb, because the Biden administration just sued um, Idaho for their pro-life laws. Um, mm -hmm. Now, wait a second, Katie. Roe got overturned. States now have the rights to pass their own. Well, no, the Biden administration and Merrick Garland is making an argument that these pro-life laws in Idaho are violating a federal statute um, because it would endanger women and give them a death sentence if they have an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage that they won't be able to get treatment for because those treatments are an abortion. And so, and they're lying, of course. And this is this is one of the most viral lies that went around the internet after Roe fell, which is that women wouldn't be able to get services for ectopic pregnancies. Um, it, was, it was a huge lie. But anyways, they're tripling down, they're quadrupling down um, because for the left, children are, have always been the sacrificial lamb on their sexual libertinism and their right. desires. And so now I think I've kind of built the bridge back to you because that statement is definitely true with what yeah. you do. So so let's yeah. dive into all that, but remind listeners, Katie, what Them Before Us does and and what your calling is. Okay, so I love talking with pro-lifers about this because actually within conservative circles, there are a lot of people that are like children's rights. What do you mean children's? Oh, you mean, because the left will use that term in ways like, oh, it's children's 
sexual rights, right? right? Their right to sexual pleasure or children's right to transition without their parents' knowledge. Oh, children's right to privacy at school to have their new identity hidden from their parents, right? So the left has falsely used this term children's rights very successfully. But at my organization, then before us, I am arguing not based on this false ideological um, scheme right. that smuggles in adult agenda in the name of children's rights. I'm arguing on children's natural rights, their basic rights, their fundamental self-evident rights. And right. so there's actually quite a lot of overlap between the pro-life world that says, regardless of what civil law says, um, we believe, we know that children have a natural right to life. And we're going to argue and we're going to advocate for that right, regardless of what kind of opposition we find, regardless of what the law says, regardless of what Merrick Garland threatens with us. You know, we this is a foundational natural right, and it will be true. Yep. whether or not the government recognizes it. That's right. So what I'm doing at them before us is I'm saying, children also have rights on this side of the womb as well, yep. right? And they have a natural right to life, but children also have a natural right to their mother and father. Yep. And a child's right to life secures their existence. A child's right to their mother and father is the best way we can ensure a thriving existence yep. for children. So these are the basic basics. I mean, really, you are talking about what it means to be human and what it means to be a child yep. when you're addressing these two natural rights. Their right to life, which, thank God, there are hundreds of organizations that are advocating for children's natural right to life. Right now, Them Before Us is the only organization solely devoted to defending children's right to their mother and father. Yep. So we talk about what we do really is every conversation about marriage, parenthood, family structure. And these days this gets into a lot of reproductive technologies because yep. we are seeing both children's right to life and children's right to their mother and father violated by what Jennifer Lawl has termed big fertility, yep. right? She did an incredible documentary on that because this is an industry built on the manufacturing, design, designing, and commodifying of children very often at the expense of some child's right to life and many children's right to their mother and father. Yep. So um, I think that that is where we are going to see a lot of overlap in this post-Roe world when it comes to fighting abortion and fighting reproductive technologies. Because yep. as, like you said, the reproductive technology industry recognizes that these two are connected, it that's is time right. for pro-lifers to recognize it too. Yeah, that's good, Katie. So there's a, a piece here from northwestern.edu, um, and the title says, quote, I'm afraid for my IVF patients. After Roe v. Wade dismantling fertility, doctor says, Northwestern medis medicine expert weighs in on the possible far-reaching effects on in vitro fertilization following the end of Roe v. Wade and why physicians are afraid for their patients. Of course, you and I would say, well, the, the pre-born person uh, should also be treated as a patient. But once again, th this is the subtle language that filters out of sight any recognition of a separate human being. And so there's many ways to create children today, unfortunately. 
And maybe if we get into it later, you can give us the primary ways that that kind of uh, happens. But maybe we should start with IVF, um, mm-hmm. simply because that's a lot of the fear right now on the left wing is that the recognition of pre-born children's right to life mm-hmm. will compromise the IVF industry, to which I want to say damn right. Um, right. But then also because we know so many Christians, Katie, who are pro-life, who give to pro-life ministries, um, who support IVF and believe that this is, to quote our founders, a blessing of liberty. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that if you believe the pre-born is a person and their dignity and rights are equivalent to the infant, the toddler, and the teenager, okay, then then what you are defending as a pro-lifer who supports IVF, is simply souls on ice. Mm-hmm. You believe that it's okay to freeze people and keep them frozen for months or years. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, maybe you're not discarding them, maybe you're not getting rid of them, but is that how we should treat persons? I would say yeah. no. So back to you. <laughs> okay, so let's just take it down to the bare bones basics. What is IVF? It is making children in Petri dishes. Yep. Okay. So um, there's a million ways to put together sperm and egg and womb, um, but the, the not a million ways, but right, there's all different kinds of combinations and technologies that can put these things together. But IVF simply means you are making babies in laboratories. Right. And typically what that means is you are extracting eggs from somebody. It could be the mother. It could be a donor. And I'm always going to say donor because this is not a charitable nonprofit. Nobody is donating eggs. Nobody is donating sperm. Everybody is buying sperm and selling sperm and buying eggs and selling eggs. And for the most part, renting wombs, right? It's very rare that you're going to find an altruistic womb rental. This is a for-profit industry. And I get my Google alerts every day on surrogacy. And very often it's like surrogacy industry expected to boom to another $4 billion next year. I mean, this is a massive global industry. And this industry makes its money by designing custom-ordered children. So what they do is they extract eggs, you know, and and so there are harms to women for egg extraction. Personally, that is not my focus because my focus is on the child that cannot consent to any of that. But ladies, this is not a way to pay off your college loans. This is a way to swap your own future fertility by selling your biological children to people that you will never, ever meet. It's very risky to your health. Because women release one egg a month, right. you're going to be injecting all kinds of hormones into your body so right. they can laparoscopically. I <laughs> should have someone on to have that that full blown conversation sometime. You that's, need to have that conversation, yeah. right? This is an absolute. Uh, but we'll stay. Yeah, we'll stay focused on the child. But that's important for women to know. It's this important, year. right? Yeah, yeah. So. Instead of just getting that one egg a month, your body is going to be hormonally manipulated so they can extract 10 or 20. And then they take those eggs and they inseminate them, you know, with whatever sperm of your choice. Maybe it's your husband's, maybe it's a stranger in Australia that you've just purchased and the vial's been shipped to you or whatever it is. So personally, I don't think that sperm and egg are sacred. Once those two come together, you now have a unique distinct human life that deserves special protection because that baby, it's a baby, has human rights. So what they'll do is they'll maybe combine 10, right? 10 eggs, 10 sperm, and then they'll let them go for three to five days. And then they're going to grade them. They're going to decide 
which of these is viable, not viable? Which one is a good quality embryo? Which one is poor quality? How many of them are girls? How many of them are boys? Which ones have the kind of genetic markers that we think are more advantageous, right? And then they're going to discard 50%, right? So right there, right at the get-go, you are formulating new humans, grading them, and then discarding them based on certain features and certain markers. So that's it's just right it's just there. the 20 it's just eugenics for the 21st century. That's, that's exactly right. And that process is built into the fertility industry's business model. And that is why all of these fertility clinics and all of these fertility doctors in red states say, "Wait a second. If you are going to define personhood beginning at conception, yep. we cannot do business in this state. That should be everything that pro-lifers need to know right. about how inhospitable wow. IVF is to the preborn child. Yep. Their business model, their practices are built on the reality that they will destroy human life. Yep. While it's very hard to find statistics because our government does not force anybody to keep track of it, we know that only about 7 or 8% of babies created in the laboratory will be born alive. 92% or so will be discarded right out of the get-go because they're not viable or they're not of good quality or they're the wrong sex or, or they have some kind of preliminary genetic markers that don't seem advantageous to the parents. Immediately, they're going to be gone. And then, like you said, maybe they've got seven that are good quality. So they're going to implant two and freeze five, right? And so those five may never make it out of the freezer. Right now, we have about one million frozen embryos in this country. And by some estimates, 20 to 40% have been functionally abandoned. So we have on ice across this nation, one of the greatest human rights crises, right? And that is because of IVF. Yep. Yep. Wow. Wow. Um, so uh, unfortunately, uh, Katie, Pete, one of the many objections that pro-lifers give when you so beautifully and articulately laid out the problem that IVF represents is to say, yeah, but what about when you just use one sperm and one egg and you create one baby and then you just, it's like, they're immediately trying to find some exception. I always find that interesting because it's, it's like, they want it so badly that yeah. they, they don't want to spend the time talking about the the moral crisis that IVF represents in the dehumanizing treatment of little children who are frozen in labs. They're, 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 they're not wanting to figure out how to solve that or talk about that. So many times when I or you lay out the problem of IVF online, the comments are just immediately... Yeah, but what about this one narrow circumstance? Right. It's like, I, so it, 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 anyway, I'm not, it's just so, it's so interesting I, that they're more concerned with reserving a exception for their fertility idol for creating so, children because they want children so bad and they haven't made it able to get pregnant naturally that they're willing to compromise the rights of children for their desires rather than on the the abuse of children's rights that is happening this side of the womb as well. So that's just an interesting point of observation, which I'm sure you've thought about as well. Um, But what would you say to someone like that who says, well, hey, 
uh, we, we are, we're pro-life, Katie, and so we did not want to create excess human beings. Yeah. We did not want to discard, and we did not want to release four or five into my wife because if too many took, you know, we didn't want to create excess to, knowing some would become sacrificial lambs in order to get that one. So we did it the pro-life way, Katie. Um, mm -hmm. How would you respond to someone like that? So I understand the absolute temptation to say we need a carve out. We need a carve out for our people, right? The people who love babies and who want to be parents and who would be wonderful mothers and fathers. And we want that because we know these women and we know these men. We know them that they would be wonderful husbands, fathers, mothers. We know that the women that are in the women's world, no friends who struggle with infertility and I was reading uh, in Genesis a couple weeks ago where Rachel um, says to Jacob, give me children or I will die. Hmm. I'll die. Because she's right. watching Leah have all of these wow. babies so right. easy, right? And she has nothing to hmm. the point where she's saying, okay, just have sex with my handmaid. Like I need children <laughs> so bad. I'm willing right, to right. do incredibly unethical things. Wow. And that is often how obsessively women especially can focus on needing fulfill to fulfill our maternal desires. Mm, right. And so that drive is very real. And as adults, we know those women and we empathize with those women. The challenge for those of us who believe that children are real people is to say, regardless of how much an adult wants something, no child should lose their life or lose their mother or father just because an adult feels like they'll die if they don't get a baby. So we have to balance that. We have to empathize, shepherd, and nurture our friends, but we have to draw a hard and fast line and say, regardless of how you suffer, regardless of your longings, you cannot violate a child's right to life or right to their mother and father. So I have friends who have used IVF, who are pro-life, and they are Christians. And, and when you hear about it from the other side, they'll say, everything you're saying about the industry is true. Hmm. I went in thinking, we're going to do this pro-life, right? I mean, we're never going to destroy any embryos. But then you get into it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so expensive. Okay, we'll make 10 embryos because the failure rate is so high. Yeah. And so we'll go through it. We'll implant two. Okay, we got one the first time. We'll implant two the next time. Oh, we got two the second time. And now we've got six. Wow. Six left over. And I guess I just assumed that I would just keep going and keep going. But now we're broke. We're in debt. Wow. I'm absolutely exhausted. But I can't, I can't let these six children go somewhere else. So we've been paying the storage fee for seven years, and we still don't know what we're going to do. Wow. Or you've got the people that have said, we went in there and we knew that we were not going to freeze any embryos. But our fertility clinic said our our fertility clinic's rating and success rate is built on how many successful live births we have because we advertise that. And that's one of the way we get new customers. And so Whoa. I've had them say they actually discarded several of our embryos without, uh, we didn't find out until later because they didn't want any of the poor quality embryos to be oh. protected. Right. So later on, we found out that they discarded some of our embryos to protect their numbers. And Whoa. so, this industry, right, it is always going to be pushing an Shouldn't anti- Shouldn't illegal? There's very little regulation, yeah. right? We are constantly trying to get some kind of regulation or at least record keeping on what they're doing with these frozen lives. And 
there is violent resistance, wow. violent, well-paid, well-funded resistance from fertility companies, because this is one of the most lucrative arms of the medical mm. world because it's almost all elective. And so they get, and they're working with desperate people who will right. pay anything to have a baby. So let's get back to the scenario mm. of the pro-lifers who say, we want to do this without violating any children's rights. So what that looks like is your own egg, his sperm in your body, 100% of the time, every embryo that is created, you immediately implant, because if you're freezing them, there's a real good chance they're never coming out of that freezer, wow. right? And so you're going to only create the number of embryos that you're going to implant fresh from your own two gametes wow. into your womb, because if you're using somebody else's womb, you are also insisting that children sacrifice something that they are made for, which is their maternal bond. Wow. You're not going to select out any embryos for genetic abnormalities or even genetic questions. You're not going to sex select because now you have three, three boys and one girl and you only want one boy and one girl. So yeah. you're going to keep those two. You're going to implant every single embryo, regardless of how, what the quality is. And so that means you're going to make two every time, right? Probably two because you don't want to implant four because if all four taken, then what if a couple of those multiply and then you have six? I mean, like, so what that means is only your gametes in your womb, fresh every time without and even if it means implanting two very poor quality embryos that aren't going to take or develop, and now you've just wasted $20,000. Wow. And then you're going to go back and do that again. So that scenario that I have given you is so cost prohibitive. I have only heard of two people in my entire experience doing this that have said, that's what we did. Wow. Only, my, only my egg, only my husband's sperm, only the number of embryos that we're willing to immediately implant, nothing frozen, no genetic screening, no genetic... Wow. And then you have to go back and do it again and again. Better, better to use that $20,000 to create 12. Wow. And then better to select six of those 12. Gnarly. And then better to take two of those six and so implant them. So you're saying, Katie, them. that like in your experience being in this field and this fight for a long time, that you have seen over and over again families that intend to do the way that you just described, but then don't end up doing it that way. They're either coerced into it, they can't afford it, because the, the wow. scenario I just described is so lengthy and cost prohibitive yep. um, that most people, most a lot of people are taking out loans for this anyway. Wow. They don't have time to do it over yeah. and over and over again. And the fertility clinic and doctors are not on their side. They're not saying, yeah, let's really preserve and protect the embryonic life here. They're saying, you're going to run out of money and you're not going to get any right. baby at this if you don't do it our way yeah. and also this is bad for our clinic to do it your way it's going to be bad for our reputation to do it your way hmm. and so i have heard stories of the clinic sneaking in the destruction of embryos because it's bad for them if they wow. don't so you are working against an anti-life industry every step of the way so it is possible right it's possible to make sure that no child's right to life or right to their mother or father, or right to a connection with their birth mother is violated. Right. But most people can't afford it and don't have the, the moral formation to resist. Yeah, yeah. And so I think for that reason, because of the, because the moral way to do it is so is so specific and so prone to temptation the other direction, that I think for those reasons, I believe Katie and I would say, that IVF just needs to be banned. 
it ought to be illegal. And yeah. that, that pisses pro-lifers off, a lot of them, unfortunately. Um, but I think one of the res- replies that you and I would have, Katie, and then I want you to build out more of this, more of this idea for any people listening who are still listening, even though they disagree, because I, I think we want to be very careful in our arguments and very articulate, um, is that at the end of the day, isn't it interesting, you've made this point before, that both sides of the aisle, the IVF pro-life side and the abortion side are both based on the desires of adults. Right. And so, but in a different way, right? And so you make the point, Katie, that that uh, we say if, if, uh, if we don't desire the child mm-hmm. in the womb that I got pregnant with because I, had, I chose to have sex, then we can destroy the child's right to life. <laughs> But mm-hmm. then we say with surrogacy and IVF and third-party reproductive technologies, if I desire the child so much yeah. <laughs> rather than not at all, I can also violate their rights. That's not, exactly Not right. their right to life, but their right to be gesta- created, gestated, and raised by the two individuals responsible for their existence. And so in, in each circumstance, isn't it just selfishness? Yeah. It's so hard, right? Because – our self-interest is so strong, both when you're in an unplanned pregnancy situation and you're panicked and you're thinking, oh my gosh, my future, my career, my relationship status, it is all in jeopardy right. with this child, right? So the pro-abortion side has said, if a child is unwanted because you, of your raging, very powerful emotions, which they are, right. if they're unwanted, you can violate their right to life and force them out of existence. Mm. But And that's the baby-taking yep. world. But you look at the baby-making world hmm. that says if a child is very wanted, if the child, if you're so desperate for a child that you say, give me a baby or else I'll die. Right, right. right? If a child is wanted to that degree, then you can violate quite a few children's right to life by yep. deeming them non-viable, the wrong sex, genetically inferior, Um or you can violate their right to a mother or father by using a third-party egg or a third-party sperm or a yep. third-party womb, right, and force them into existence, right? And so both of these, you know, the baby-making industry and the baby-taking industry are really two sides of the same child commodifying coin. Whoa. Both determine children's rights based on adult wants. Mm. And as pro-lifers, as Human rights advocates, which is really what pro-lifers are, you have to defend children's rights from adults in both of these worlds. Hmm. You know what's interesting, Katie, is the the power of normalization. Mm -hmm. You might have thought about this concept before. Um, The power of normalization is incredibly powerful. Uh, it's, It's kind of hard to overstate. Um, so let me build that out and connect it to what you're talking about. Um, did the anti-Semites in Germany, did they believe they were bad people? No, that's kind of the point, right? You never think that you're the bad guy when you've been involved in some of the most atrocious human rights violations ever recorded in human history. Does, did, does Mao, did Mao think that he was a bad guy? Did mm-hmm. Stalin think he was a really bad guy? No. They always thought that what they were doing was for the welfare of humanity. Pro-abortion people don't think that they're wicked people. 
Um, and, you know, thankfully, you know, I've been able to change some people's minds that I was in relationship with in college. So we had a friendship, so they, they trusted me more, um, who supported legal abortion. And now one friend I'm thinking in particular would look back and she would say, good Lord, what was I doing? Mm -hmm. But she never thought that she was this wicked person, right? The power of normalization. And so when I say things on a college campus, Katie, like uh, the Planned Parenthood lynches more unarmed black lives in the womb every two weeks than the KKK lynched in a century, the UC Berkeley students' eyes glaze over. And they look at me like I, like idiot, idiot would be an understatement. They look at me like I am some strange, strange creature from another planet when I say things like that. Um, so th they don't think that their support of abortion is this demonic evil thing because it's been so normalized in the American consciousness and public for so long that it's taken for granted. Unfortunately, and this is hard, this is, it's so hard to shake a pro-lifer out of their reverie on this, but I think the same thing needs to be said. You don't understand pro-lifer. You mm -hmm. do not recognize yet that what you are supporting and the industry you are supporting is wicked. Yeah. The violation of children's rights at their most vulnerable stage possible, our posterity, <laughs> little babies frozen in freaking freezers so that you can fulfill your desires of parenthood. You are blinded. You don't see it. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that, that, that you're this wicked, evil person. I'm saying you're supporting something wicked and evil, but you don't see it as such. And C.S. Lewis talked about this once, and then I'll throw the ball back into your court, Katie. He said, of all the tyrannies, a tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be mm -hmm. the most oppressive because it may yeah. be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And so you may not have to deal with the moral accountability of terrorizing unborn babies because they're babies. They're not screaming, please stop this. They're not aware of the abuses happening to them, but it's still wrong. Yeah. But it's still wrong. And we as so many pro-lifers, we're doing it and telling ourselves it's for the good of the babies because mm -hmm. they're going to love me and I would be a great mother. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the ends justify the means. Anyways, I thought that concept was important because I think many pro-lifers' eyes are blinded because of how normalized we have been as we've been swimming in the, the streams of the culture of death for so many decades yeah. that we are not as good at identifying that which is not Christian, that which is not rational, that which is not moral, and that which is. Anyway. So I like... I, what you've done is you've kind of given an overview of an awful lot of injustices um, that have taken place, right? You've got some KKK lynchings. You've got the the average German, you know, during you know, pre and mid Holocaust. Um, you've got what's going on in the abortion world, and then and you've got reproductive technologies. Um, and 
I think that you're right that a lot of them are like, I'm doing a virtuous thing. Yep. I'm ridding the world. I mean, I, I am, I know, not I'm ridding the world, but it resulted in ridding the world. But in their mind, they're thinking, I am protecting something that matters. Yep. And so here's what I have noticed, because most of the work that I do, I've left much of the pro-life work to my um, allies and compatriots who are doing incredible work on this. And I have focused on the area that nobody else is doing, and that is on why the definition of marriage is a matter of justice for children, hmm. the harms of no-fault divorce, right? Yep. When mom and dad figure we're, we're not in love anymore, kids would will be happy if I'm happy. Same-sex parenting, right? What happens when we intentionally starve children of a mother or father? Sperm and egg donation, where you are cutting children off from a biological parent, even if they're raised in a heterosexual home. The commodification that goes along with surrogacy and even adult-centric adoption and how that is damaging to the child instead of having a child-centric view of adoption, right? Wow, so very good. what I noticed in all of these conversations is we get things wrong when we misidentify the victims. Mm. And in all of these conversations, Whoa, we yeah. make the adults the victims, right. right? The woman with the unplanned pregnancy, she's the victim. Or the person struggling with infertility, she's the victim. Whoa. Or the person that experiences right. same-sex attraction and wants a family, they're the victim. Yeah. Or the couple in the struggling marriage that just doesn't want to try anymore. Yep. They're the victim. And so what happens when we misidentify the victim in family conversations, especially you will always victimize children. Yeah. 100% of the time, if you make adults, the victim, it will mean that children are victimized. And wow. that is what we see the most starkly in the pro abortion world, wow, where if we exactly say the right. woman is the victim for the unplanned pregnancy, if she is, you will victimize the child. And it's the same thing with IVF and reproductive technologies. If the adults that desperately want the baby are the victim, then obviously we have to victimize the child by having them sacrifice their right to life or right to their mother or father right. to, to remedy your victimhood. Wow. If the person with same-sex attraction that would be a great father or a great mother, but they're in a sterile relationship, well, if they're the victim, then we must get somebody else's child to give to them. Mm. And so probably the most foundational thing that I think we need to do as activists for the rights of children is we need to properly identify the victims. And I'm going to give you a little hint. It's not the adults. Yep. When we get these questions wrong, it is always children that will be victimized. Mm. And if you're not a Christian, you'll have to figure that out in your world mm. But if you are a Christian, your God wow. will hold you accountable for that. He has expectations wow. of you when it comes to protecting the most vulnerable. Yeah. And yeah. I would say that the commandment to protect the fatherless is much more explicit mm. and repeated throughout scripture than the command to protect the unborn baby. We have 39 laws in the Old Testament that talk about special protection and provision and recognition for those that do not have a dad. And if you are going to misidentify the victims in marriage and family debates, whether it's reproductive technologies or abortion or what the definition of marriage is or divorce or same-sex parenting or whatever it is, if you get those questions wrong, you're not just abandoning the fatherless, you're endorsing and manufacturing the fatherless. Yep. So you actually, Christian, have wow. a very clear biblical mandate to dig into this and get it exactly right. Yep. Because if you are going to turn away and say, not my business, 
not the main issue. Yep. You are now in millstone around your neck territory yep. in terms of causing little ones to stumble. Yep, I was going to say that. Yep. Yeah, Isaiah says there was justice was absent in the public square. God mm. actually wants you to add it advocate for justice in public policy issues. And Isaiah says, God was grieved yep. because there was no justice. That's right. And so he has this expectation that you are going to protect the most vulnerable, specifically those who have lost a dad. And now thanks to reproductive technologies, we've got kids who are intentionally motherless as well. Yep. And you are going to advocate on their behalf in the public square, yep. not just for the preborn in terms of abortion, yep. but for preborn and postborn when it comes to their right to a mom and dad. Yep. So Katie Amos 515 says, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates or in the yeah. courts yep. that it may be that the God of Joseph or that, that the Lord, the God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Joseph. In other words, uh, contend for righteousness in the courts, in the public square, so that maybe, maybe, God will be gracious to the remnant. Uh, so, yeah. so what you said is is entirely correct and, and biblical. But I love the the thought you just made. I want to I want to kind of repeat it for our listeners because I, I thought it was profound. I don't want people to miss it. Um, if 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 we make the little ones stumble, and we don't care for the fatherless, uh, God takes that very seriously. But what if you what if you a priori plan? to create fatherless and motherless children. Mm -hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't that be in God's eyes like another level? Yeah. Like it's it would be in the abortion debate. It would sort of be like whether you allow unborn children to die and you don't do anything or you're the abortionist. You're the one yeah. killing the children. I guess the analogy here with children's rights, this side of the womb is if it's wicked to abandon fatherless children, how much worse is it to, to intentionally plan to create fatherless children or motherless well, children? And to do it, like you said in your CS, for their own good. Right. I mean, you're doing this for their own good, right? Because love makes a family. Right, right. And if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy. And adult sexual expressionism and adult sexual desires and adult sexual identity is our God. Mm. And all that means children's right to life, right to their mother and father must be sacrificed on the altar of that God. Wow. So um, this is all happening in the name of progress and equality. I just wrote an article that is going to be, I think in the Washington Examiner tomorrow or the next day on this, <laughs> this act called the equal, uh, I don't know, ridiculous. I'll, I'll tell you what it means. It means government subsidizing motherless or fatherless children act is really what it is. And it's this idea. Yes. Tell that, us about that. Yeah. So it's, um, is this, Adam federal? Schiff, this is federal, right? So Adam Schiff and a bunch of other Democrats at the behest Adam of these Schiff. LGBT lobbying groups. Don't get me started on Adam Schiff. Yeah, oh my god. Especially this group called Men Having Babies. Right? Men Having Babies. It's one of the largest pro-surrogacy groups around, which is men making children specifically with the intent to exclude women from those kids' lives. But we need two women to get it done. So we'll rent them and purchase them until we don't need them anymore. And then our kids will live a motherless existence. It is just wow. it's sickening well, and, as and you horrifying. You said before, Katie, black and brown wombs are much cheaper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go overseas if you need the discount. Right. White wombs are much more expensive. But they wow. proposed this act, which would allow people to take as a tax deduction their medical costs related to IVF, surrogacy and sperm and egg donation and embryos. Right. So you can purchase an entire embryo. Right. And then you can get that as a medical deduction. And 
previous, like we actually do have some states that allow this, but you have to have a demonstrated period of infertility first, right? So a couple, husband and wife, if they need, they need, they choose IVF services or whatever, they can take those because it's very expensive because they're making bank off this and they can get a medical deduction on their taxes. Now, the LGBT community is like, well, that's not fair because we will never be able to demonstrate infertility because we're not having heterosexual sex. <laughs> and so that definition of infertility is, wow. is too exclusive and we need to be inclusive. And so they're proposing this act that would in essence say, you have a right to have a child, even if it means you're a single adult or a same sex adult, right? And the, the definition of infertility doesn't work because these people are probably fertile. Their relationship wow. status is not. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. now we are talking about passing a federal subsidy, not for people who I disagree making children using their own gametes and IVF, but the child goes home probably with their mom or dad, or at least a mom or dad. Right. But now we are talking about federally subsidizing the making of intentionally motherless or fatherless so we children pay for it. that we're going to pay for, wow. right? Christians, get the hell up. Get <laughs> yeah. up. Oppose this with every fiber of your being. Mm. Be willing to be called a hateful bigot because kids are worth it. Yeah. And you can say to your gay and lesbian neighbors wow. who you good luck finding someone who loves their LGBT friends more than me. Mm. Like I will, I'm like, you are at my house for Thanksgiving. I'm helping you move. I'm bringing you casseroles when you're sick, right? Your love of your LGBT neighbor is not in conflict with defending the rights of children. Yep. But if you're gonna have to choose, you better choose defending the kids. Yep. Because if you are not, you are betraying, you are betraying the demographic that God said, don't touch them. Yep. They need protection. So we've got to, I'm, I'm sorry, but the whole reproductive technology discussion, it is, if abortion is children's rights 1.0, reproductive technologies has to be children's rights 2.0. Really? Okay, they, they go hand in hand here and we have to get it straight. Yeah. So an objection, Katie, might be something like this. Um, well, that all sign that all sounds well and fine, Katie, when you put it that way. But um, it really doesn't do any harm to the kids. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, surrogacy is, is fine because it, uh, and hey, I'm with you, Katie, on the gay stuff. I don't think children should be raised by, uh, two women or two men, unless there's literally no one else to adopt. I'll, I'll join you on that battlefield, Katie. That's fine. Um, I don't think we should um, allow a dehumanizing market to be built that mistreats poor black and brown women or white women who only turn to surrogacy to get money for their mm -hmm. eggs or for their womb. Okay, I don't. I don't want. I don't want that kind of market. But you know, if it's altruistic and um, and you, they haven't been able to get pregnant and you do IVF in a careful way, then, hey, all this is fine, Katie, because it doesn't make any difference to the kids. Mm -hmm. As long as they have a loving mother and a loving father, even if their birth mother was my sister <laughs> or my cousin, but they're, but they're being raised by, you know, my, mom, my wife and me, you know, what's wrong, what could be wrong with that? Uh, Katie, I mean, don't you want more babies in the world? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were pro-life. I thought you supported the first mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So we, we hear some of these objections as well. How would you respond to someone like that? So my rule 
even though we talk about a lot of different issues, a lot of different forms of reproductive technologies, a lot of different family structures, there is one rule that governs all of them. And it is, don't make kids sacrifice for you. Hmm. Okay. If you, the adult, are sacrificing for the child, ding, 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 you're on the right track. If you are making a child sacrifice for adults, if you are insisting the child sacrifice something that they have a right to, that they're made for, that they long for, that they crave for adults, boo hiss, you are on the wrong track. But, okay? but no, Katie, that's not fair because I, my wife is still the bio mom. We mm-hmm. just used a friend as the birth mom and it was still my wife's eggs. So what's the problem with that? So the good news is that child will still have the maternal love and paternal love that maximizes child development, right? Male and female parents are critical to kids. That child will not have the identity struggles and genealogical bewilderment Hmm. that often goes with reproductive technologies using a third party. Right. But what you're doing is you are saying that that initial primal connection with the one person that child knows their mother is inconsequential Mm. and not valuable for the child's long-term development. Now, adoptees have been living this world for about about a century, right? When we've really had more common adoption from birth. And what we have heard from these adoptees who have overwhelmingly been adopted into wealthier, more highly educated families that statistically actually spend more, adoptive parents statistically spend more time with their kids than the general population does. So these are not kids that are being adopted into disadvantaged homes, right? These are kids that actually have leveled up if you want to talk about socioeconomic, right? And yet these kids have long referred to something called a primal wound. And that is the loss of that first relationship with the person that they bonded with set them back developmentally and hindered their ability to trust and attach and form relationships. And it makes sense, mm. right? That in the very... And these were the children no who were separated from their birth mother. Right at birth. At birth yeah. Right at birth. And immediately given to adults just, who love Just for adoption. Right. This is, not to right. mention now surrogacy. Not to mention the commercialization that may yeah. go into the, the surrogacy, right? And so what we're saying is that bond between mother and baby matters. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting because pro-lifers, when we are trying to convince a woman to keep her unplanned pregnancy, what do we tell her? You're already a mother. Yeah. This baby already loves you. Sing to the baby, talk right. to the baby. The baby, the baby knows your voice already. Voice. Yeah, pregnancy centers will say this mouth. to women. Yeah. The baby, babies actually will recognize their language of origin if they are swapped to another adult right, who speaks a different language. Whoa. Babies pick up on so much of what Amazing. they hear from their mother. And so it's interesting to me that pro-lifers will say, that's so precious. Mm. It's so wonderful. That baby already loves you and needs you until we want a baby and we need someone else to and carry we it. To and then we say, yeah. oh, it's no big deal. It's your bun in somebody else's oven, mm. right? No, that's not it. Yeah, that maternal doesn't seem bond, consistent, does it? Yeah. Not consistent. So here's another wow. sort of thought experiment that, you know, in our book, so I wrote a book about all of this. So if you're like, I don't know about that statistic, that story, that aspect, there's a book on it. Yep. And it will answer all your then questions. Before us, excellent book. Yep. It, it's, it will help you. It is a 
a seamless garment of children's rights defense, and it's going to answer all these questions. But in the book, on chapter eight, in surrogacy, we share several stories of women who were paid well to be surrogates, um, who knew going into this that it was somebody else's bun in their oven, and they were going to make bank. But you know what wow. happened? They bonded with that baby or those babies, mm. and they said, I don't care if I'm not the genetic mom. These are my babies. I wow, love them, and you can't right. have them. You can't have them back. Now, why is it that a woman would feel that way? <laughs> would feel that way? Is it because it's mothers natural. Bond? <laughs> yeah. It's natural because we're made to bond with the children that we are gestating because there's actually a kind of chimerism mm. of melding of mother and child wow. and that any woman that has a baby related to them or not, miscarried or not, is going to have cells of that baby embedded in her brain for years to come. Wow, that's right. right. It is this incredible medical phenomenon. And so they bond on a very physiological level, but they certainly bond on an emotional level. So here's my mm. question for people that say, oh, that bond, no big deal. Cut right. them away, paste them onto a, you know, their genetic parents, no big deal. Well, I think it's fascinating that these surrogates who had financial incentive to give the baby to their biological parents couldn't, even though presumably these surrogates had dozens or hundreds of other relationships. And yet that one relationship was something they couldn't let go of. Wow. So then explain to me how that baby who only has one relationship, right. just one, they just only know one person in yeah. all the world. And if that surrogate can't let go of the baby, even though she's got a feast of other relationships, but you expect that baby who is at the most primordial stage of development, mm. they can somehow just cut, let it go and have it have wow. no impact on them. Wow. No, no, either the mother child bond matters all the time or it doesn't matter at all. Wow. And we know that it matters all the time. Wow. You, you even point something out in your book, Katie, um, which I want to bring back into the conversation just to bolster what you're saying for maybe some of the critics who will listen to this. Um, you, you make the point in your book that studies have shown that maternal separation has been a major physiological stressor for right. infants. That's you right. point out research published in biological psychiatry providing some evidence of this. And you make the point that humans are the only mammals who practice this maternal neonate separation, meaning separating babies from their parents at birth. We don't do this with animals. Animals don't do this. But its psychological or physiological impact on the baby has not has been unknown until now. Researchers mm -hmm. in this study measured heart rate variability in two-day-old sleeping babies for one hour each during skin-to-skin -skin contact with mother and then alone in a cot next to mother's bed. The neonatal autonomic activity was 176% higher and quiet sleep 86% lower during maternal separation compared to skin-to-skin -skin contact. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So we have some research now kind of even bolstering um, what you said and, and what kind of we always know to be true. But you put this beautifully in your book. You say birth is intended to be a continuation of the mother-child bond not the moment at which the child suffers an intentional primal wound. It's the day when a baby should see the mother she's already loved for the first time, not the last. Mm -hmm. And so I, I appreciate you making that argument. I, it's, it's kind of silly that we have to. I mean, the, the concern regarding the abuse and commercialization and surrogacy ought to raise enough red flags for pro-lifers to support stopping it. 
but they always want these carve outs um, yes. for their own desires. And so I think that's, that's a helpful argument you've made. Um, any other, as we, as we wind down here, Katie, any other um, things that we should be aware of in the new horizons of this battle or additional things that, that, that you think we as pro-lifers should be thinking about? Well, just that if you make carve-outs for yourself and for your people, uh, do you think it's going to stay there? Do you think that if you say, well, surrogacy is a gift and a blessing, as long as it's the gametes of the two adults that are going to be raising them and there's no commercialization involved. Um, and I know people who have had children through those processes. I am grateful their children are alive. I pray that they have a very secure, strong bond, even though they began at a disadvantage because the baby began at, the baby began nine months behind in right. essence. Right. And so I pray that that goes well. But if you're going to normalize and especially commercialize the separation of mother and child, what you're going to get and what we've got now is on-demand designer babies. Mm -hmm. And so just this past week, there was a big news story that hit where these two very, very wealthy gay men procured a child through surrogacy, spent about, you know, as is always, six figures on it. And unfortunately, the fertility company got their order wrong. <sighs> they got a bad product. They had product. ordered a male child, but unfortunately, the surrogate gave birth to a female child. Oh, and bummer. now those oh, men no. are suing the clinic for damages. Sick. And this follows close on the heels of two women who ordered a female child and halfway through their pregnancy were informed that in fact, one of the women was carrying a boy. And she went into a spiral in terms of devastation, and she was traumatized. I mean, she compared it to a rape in college oh of finding gosh. out that she was carrying a male child. And so if you are going to wow. play this game of babies created in laboratories and the intentional separation from their mothers, yep. you will not stop at the supposed pro-life carve-outs. Yep. Either children have rights mm. that deserve to be respected and protected, or there's wiggle room, there's a yep. little crack, and the world will bust open that door and say, then we get any baby we want, any time we That's want, any way we want. And that point. is not what children are. Wow. That is not what children are. Yep. yep. I'm glad you finished with that, Katie. That's exactly right. I, because I've, I've always wondered the best way to communicate that to someone who's found a morally permissible carve-out in this conversation, that's exactly right. For the, the minority that you're wanting to carve out for yourself, do you think the spirit of the age is going to leave that crack as it is, uh, no, the, the culture will blow that crack into oblivion, blow the whole wall down until the floodgates are open once again. Very, very well said, Katie. Let me quote you here as we say goodbye, and then you guys check out uh, Katie's ministry, Them Before Us, and her book entitled The Same. You said, babies are subjects of rights, not objects of rights. They have a right to be known and loved by their mother and father. They have a right to not be commodified, designed, and purchased. We fought a civil war and the practice of buying and selling people. And now we're bringing it back in the name of progress. And that's exactly what's happening. But we don't have to deal with the consequences right now, do we? Because the baby, unlike the black man, can't say, please stop. Yeah. And we won't be reaping the blatantly obvious in your face consequences of what we're doing until many years down the road, which is why Bonhoeffer said the ultimate test for a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. Mm -hmm. Katie, thanks for joining us today.
Yeah, thanks so much for being willing to talk about it and cover it. And it's hard, but that is actually what Christians are made to do, yeah. is they're made to confront the challenges of this world and rise up to those challenges. Yeah. And so you guys and you listeners, right, the people that are willing to listen to Seth and follow him into these conversations, you're probably going to be some of the few mm. that understand this in a way that others don't. And so honestly, you need to be thanking Seth and you need to be supporting Seth um, because he's willing to go in a holistic child protection um, platform because that's actually what this, are we really about protecting kids or are we just single issue people? Yep. So honestly, you need to make up the donors that Seth has lost, right? Because he's <laughs> actually going to be saving babies by being willing to talk about reproductive technologies. So I pray that there's going to be some of you that, um, you know, fill in tenfold for what he's been lost for being willing to tackle these topics. Mm, that's nice of you, Kitty. I didn't, I didn't ask her to say that, but thank you, friend. Well, we're going to get you on some more stages um, because uh, I feel burdened to get, to get you on more stages so more people hear this. God bless you, Katie. Great. Thanks for having me. Yep. Uh, thank you guys for joining the show today. Uh, once again, go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. YouTube channel just blew up in the last five months. Uh, help us continue to grow that. As YouTube just said, we're going to be cracking down on abortion, misinformation, and disinformation. Wonderful. Um, and of course, remember, uh, Google owns YouTube, guys. And, and Google said last year, we're banning all ads for the abortion pill reversal, which is just the hormone progesterone, which is not dangerous to women at all because they're saying it's dangerous. These are our, techno our technocrat... Um, overlords um, who oversee the killing of children and want to silence voices like Kitty and myself. So uh, help us do that. Will you go subscribe to my Rumble, please? I guess I finally caved and I'm building that up because if I ever get destroyed on YouTube, we want to keep having the content existing. Go subscribe at Rumble. If you want to book me for an event or see my speaking schedule, go to SethGruber.com. And if you want to become an ally of the White Rose Resistance to help me prick the collective conscience of the culture and awaken the church to action in the late hour of this fight and create thousands of Seth Grubers to be a pain in the ass, a fly in the ointment, a stick in the face to the abortion industrial complex and the spirit of the age. Help us do that by going to the whiterose.life, the whiterose.life and become an ally of the white rose. Till next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Uh -huh.